The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. We're going to be in Jonah 3, uh, and so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. And uh, the question that I want to ask as we start our time together is, what are you living for? What are you, what are you living for? Is there a, a cause or a purpose outside of just the everyday ordinary that gets, you, that gets you up? Something that's bigger than yourself, something that you believed that if you lived it, it would radically change the world. What are you living for? Maybe another way to ask this question is, what would you die for? What, what would you die for? What are you... What are you going to spend yourself on? And I think that this is why, you know, we love movies. Uh, we love, especially now, we love the Marvel movies. And I think one of the reasons we love that is because Heroes gives us, gives us this concrete expression of what does it look like to live for something bigger than ourselves. What does it look like to live a life that is filled with passion and boldness and courage? To live for something that matters, to live with conviction because we know that it has impact. And, and I think that we have to, all of us, we are designed to live for something bigger than ourselves. Uh, Dorothy Sayers has a, a quote that I think really hits uh, a particular sin of our age. She says, In the world it's called tolerance, but in hell it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. And I think that oftentimes that expresses the lifestyle that we have is that we are half-hearted, lukewarm, and so therefore we don't really spend ourselves on anything truly except for us. She's saying that the sin of apathy and indifference has so captured us that we don't live for anything greater than ourselves. When we are the most important person and cause that we're living for, our true impact and significance in this world shrinks. You see, we were not made to orbit around ourselves. And so the more we grow in importance in our own eyes, the, the less we feel important. Because when we are made much of, then our impact in this world shrinks. It shrivels because we aren't living for anything that is eternal, for anything that truly has ultimate value. And so what are we, what are we living for? What are we willing to, to die for? When we orbit around ourselves, ultimately we will have a sense of despair and purposelessness that will eat away at our soul. We'll have this sense of longing and unfulfillment that no amount of entertainment or distraction will ultimately cover. It's when we decrease and hold on to something much bigger than ourselves that we truly come to life. This cause bigger than ourselves is ultimately bringing God's healing, God's grace into this world as we receive it, as we are recipients of it. And so the reason I ask this is because as we go into Jonah 3, 
we get a glimpse of what God is beginning to do. God has not completed it in Jonah, as we'll see, but God is beginning to do this work in Jonah of freeing him from himself so that he would live for something bigger, for something far more important, far more valuable. And so we see that God is starting to do this process. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to uh, read in chapter 3 all of those 10 verses. In global context, chapter 2, I think one of the most interesting things about it is that at the end of it, it talks about uh, Jonah's, it's Jonah's prayer. And in uh, verse 10, he talks about that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God is the one that owns salvation. It's his, to bestow, to grant. And then listen in chapter 3 for what happens. So verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a big idea that I think clarifies this passage and is going to guide us for our time together. It's that God's mercy is shown and revival spreads when Nineveh truly repents from their sin. God's mercy is shown and revival spreads when Nineveh truly repents from their sin. In view of God's mercy, we should pursue a lifestyle of repentance, longing for revival. In view of God's mercy, we should pursue a lifestyle of repentance, longing for revival to spread. And so there's two points that we're going to talk about. Um, Today is going to be all about God's mercy. And so it's going to be talking about God's mercy, uh, how God's mercy changes his servants, and how God's mercy changes his enemies how God's mercy changes his servants, and how God's mercy changes his enemies. And so the first thing, how God's mercy changes his servants. So we see two things. First uh, in this, we see uh, God's persistent grace and uh, God's call, God's intentional call upon uh, the prophet. So first, God's persistent grace. So in verse 1, we see it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time means it came to him the first time. And if you read it, it's almost the exact same thing. I mean, it's almost word for word the exact same, except that God says, listen, I'm going to give you a message, and you're going, to, you're going to say what I tell you. The first time, God tells him, go and call against their evil. But Jonah messed it up. I mean, right? I mean, Jonah heard the word of the Lord, if we read chapter 1, and he's like, no, I'm good. 
And he totally runs the opposite direction from God. He, I mean, he flees as far away as possible from what God called him to do. And so, I mean, if it was me, I'm saying I'm going to pick a different servant. You know, if my errand boy, you know, takes the groceries and goes, you know, I don't know, California, I'm like, hey, listen, I'm picking a different grocery person. You know, I'm, we're going someplace else. But God is so gracious and he's persistent in his grace towards Jonah and that he disciplines Jonah, right? We see that he sends a storm to discipline Jonah. And then not only that, when Jonah's suicidal, he appoints a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And so I don't know if that's some discipline, but I mean, he, Jonah has three days to think about this in the belly of a fish, and then the fish throws him up, you know, on his way to Nineveh, you know, saying, hey, here you go, here's a second chance. So maybe, you know, I mean, Jonah, as we see, Jonah isn't completely obedient. Uh, Colin, I think, said it real well in Bible study, he's more compliant. Because, I mean, if you just got swallowed by a fish, I don't know what the second round of discipline is going to be, but I don't want to see it. Uh, and so he, he's, he's I'm, you know, he's more compliant saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. But, but man, God even knows that he's going to be compliant, that he's not even fully obedient. And God, as we'll see in chapter four, God's still working on him. God's still working in him and through him. And so what we probably learn, I mean, we don't know if Jonah's the author, but he's most likely at least, at the very least, telling his own story. And so it seems that God's word probably came to him not just a second time, but a third and a fourth and a fifth, that God's word was continuing to come to Jonah, revealing his disobedience and calling him towards obedience, calling him towards God's will for his life. And so we see this progression with Jonah. We see how God is, is taking him and moving him more and more and more, how his grace is haunting us down. I love this, this terminology that God is the hound of heaven that he knows where we're at, and he can sniff us down, and he's going to find us out, and he's going to bring us back. Now, note, this doesn't mean that we can sin, and we can use God's grace and sovereignty as an excuse for our sin. Well, God, God's going to work all things together for good, and it's God's will, and then we use that to justify our sin. Hear me, Jonah faced dire consequences, and so oftentimes will we. Yeah, it is true that God can work all things together for good, and that's used to comfort us when we're in a repentant state, not to encourage us when we're a sinful one. Now, Philippians 1.6, I think it, it is an encouragement to us. God's mercy changes us. He says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God, he started the work in Jonah, and you see step by step he is bringing him to that day of completion. And the tr- this, that same truth is, is true for us, is that God started a work in you, Christian, and he is, through his love and his persistence and his patience, bringing you to this day of completion. Will you stand before the Lord and be perfect as he is perfect? And it's good news to know that God finishes what he starts, and that since it's his work, he won't quit. He's not going to quit on you. He's not going to stop sanctifying you. He's not going to stop making you holy, calling you out from the ways of sin and leading you into the path of righteousness. That should reassure our hearts. God is faithful in that. Now, we see Jesus talk about this same principle about um, how God used Jonah and as an illustration for how God was going to use Jesus. We see in Matthew 12, verse 40 through 41, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something, is, something greater than Jonah is here. 
And in other passages, and uh, he talks about the sign of Jonah. And what is this sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about? It's that God is able to use weakness to show his strength. I mean, God brought this rebellious, broken prophet and is able to demonstrate his strength. I mean, at, the, at his really half-hearted preaching, God's power goes out and changes and revives a whole city. And so it shows that, that God, he uses the weakness of men to demonstrate his own strength. That God, he uses the foolishness of, his foolishness is stronger than the wisdom of men. That God can bring life out of death. It shows his, his power. And we see this in John 12, verses 24 through 26. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying that unless a grain of wheat falls, unless it dies, it doesn't bear fruit. You see, if you and if we only orbit around ourselves, if we are the most important thing that we are living for, our pleasure, our momentary satisfaction, our circumstances, then we will never bear fruit. Our lives will often feel purposelessness and we will not be effective. We will not see change in this world, in our families, in our neighborhoods. You see, God beckons us to live for something more. He beckons us to give up our life because only in giving up, only in dying to this world, to this life, will we see that there is fruit and will we see that our lives will be far more effective than we could have ever dreamed or imagined. And sometimes God brings in his mercy suffering into our life to do this because God wants us to, to see that our lives here is not what we are called to live for. And so sometimes he has to bring in suffering and failure into our life to help us to realize that. And so we see that in God's mercy, that he brings in failure and in suffering in Jonah's life in order to do a couple things. In order, one, that failure and suffering, it, it can make us servants. Failure and suffering, it can make us servants. Now think about it. I mean, look at almost any organization. You know, whether you're looking at leading doctors that are fighting against cancer, or whether you're looking at for those that have handicaps and, and people that are trying to do uh, innovative you know, research or, or go and fight and, and fundraise for this, usually it's people that have been directly impacted by it or they know their loved ones have been impacted by it. And, and it's, it's these moments of deep hardship, of deep hurt and pain or deep failure that that can move us into action, that draw us out. And, and they do a couple things. First, that they reveal that there's a problem. You see, a lot of times we live in this kind of ideal world where we say, well, you know, there are problems out there, but they're not my problems, and they're not that bad. <laughs> and, uh, and then what happens is, is that those problems become our problems. They actually impact our life. They start changing our circumstances, and they grab a hold of us, and we realize that there are serious problems and this is what hopefully happens with sin is that we realize that sin is real and it grabs a hold of us and we realize its destructiveness in our lives. And that it starts to say, well, that's not just a problem for those people out there, but it's a problem for, for me. And I want to be a, a means of helping to see people be healed and people be changed. 
as we experience that. And so it has the opportunity to make you a servant because it shows you that there is a problem, but that there is hope of that problem being changed, of that problem being solved. And so it, it can move us by the grace that God would give us to solve those things. So it, it, failure and suffering reveals that there's a problem and that everything isn't okay, that something has to be done. It moves us because we don't want to see other people go through the pain and through the hurt that we have or that we have seen others go through. The second thing is that failure and suffering humbles you. Right? It, it humbles you. that You realize that you're not above the problems, that they can affect you, and if they can affect you, they can affect others also. Sin and its impact. You know, seeing my mom go through breast cancer was one of the things that woke me up to saying cancer is real. You know, it's, it's painful, it's a disease, it, it, it can tear apart life, but it also gave me compassion. You know, it, 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 made me, it moved me. But then, more importantly, seeing my own sin and my own brokenness in my life, seeing my propensity for selfishness, seeing my ability to, to destroy, to run away from the Lord, for me that reveals that I'm not above the problem. It doesn't matter what calling you go into or how much you know that sin will find. Sin has a way of, of seeking to destroy and lead you from the Lord. And we're not above it. And so hopefully, I mean, for me in those experiences, when I've seen my own sin, my own brokenness, it humbles me and also moves me to realize that I have to cling to God's grace and that other people need this grace. That even if they don't see their own sin, there's going to become a time where they do and they are in desperate need of God's grace. And so it moves us. It moves us to, to, to be a servant, but it also moves us to have compassion. And we see this, you know, uh, a Christmas Carol, I think, is a good illustration, right? Ebenezer Scrooge, he doesn't see his own problem. He's, he's greedy. He, all he wants is money. And he, it takes this dream where he encounters and he sees his own failure. He sees, I mean, and, and it really is kind of a, a tribulation time where he gets to see, you know, what it would look like for him to die. What, it, what it, his, his greed and how it's affected all of those other people. And it's this this realization of his failure that it brings him to, to be compassionate. It changes his heart, and you see he goes out, and all, all of a sudden he starts to become generous. He starts to give. And this is what God's grace, God's mercy, wants, he wants to do in our hearts, is that he wants to take our failures, he wants to take our, our tribulations, our sufferings, and he wants to use those to make us servants, to make us more compassionate you see, your, your hardships and your suffering, they're either going to do one or two things. They're either going to move you outside of yourself to live for something bigger, to live for something more important, or they're going to lead you to be consumed with yourself. And you're going to be wrapped into self-pity and bitterness. And you're, it's, going to, it's going to start to, to erase the ability to truly love. And so don't waste your suffering. What are you doing with the suffering that God is, is giving to you? That he's... he's using to form you. Are you wasting it? Are you, are you allowing God to use it to draw you outside of yourself, to live for something bigger, to become a servant, to be compassionate? And so we see God's, God's mercy to change his servant. The second thing we see is that God's intentional calling. God's intentional calling. So God is a God who sends us. Now, he calls Jonah in, and he sends him out. I, I think expressing like this, God's a spiritual tornado. And that he, you ever seen a tornado, right? It draws everything in. And then as soon as it draws it in, it's, it throws it back out. 
And this is what God does, is that he draws us in. It's his grace, his beauty. I mean, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ is first and foremost to see his beauty, to see his worth, his value. That we, be, we behold God's grace and what it is that he has done in dying for us on a cross and resurrecting from the dead. We behold the purpose that is found in him, that he is the pearl of great price, and that draws us in. It captivates our hearts, and we see the purpose for which we were made. But you see that when, we, when it draws us in, it also sends us out. And we see this with Abraham. I mean, right, God, God calls Abraham, and Abraham has this unique, special relationship with God. I mean, he talks to God in this beautiful way. But it also, and, and God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But what does that blessing do? God blesses him, right, in order that he would in turn be a blessing, that God through him would bless all nations of the world. I mean, think about Isaiah. Isaiah has no idea that he's going to actually have this, that kind of encounter with God that he does. And he is, he's brought up and he sees the glory of God. He sees this, I mean, and he falls down at his feet because he's terrified at the holiness and at the beauty of God. But what does it do? He's not just drawn, God doesn't just draw him in. Every time God draws someone in, he then in turn sends him out. And God turns with Isaiah and he says, who will go? I have this people, who will go for me? And Isaiah immediately, after seeing the glory of the Lord, he says, I will go, send me. And this is what God does in our lives, is that as he draws us in, as we draw near the Lord, he then in turn, he sends us out. He sends us out to be his people. And this is how he changes us, is that he draws us in to send us out. To send us out. So this is, a scary thing, though. Right? We like the drawing in part because we get to have this amazing experience with God. I mean, we love the worship part. God, come, and I want to experience this. You know, I mean, I love feeling, uh, you know, fulfilled and loved and encouraged and cared for. I love feeling those things. But then it gets scary at times, right? Because then it requires commitment for us to go out. It requires for us to say, listen, I am willing to go where you send me. I'm willing to be obedient to what you have called me to. And this is, this is scary because we don't like commitment. We don't like commitment in almost anything. And so being missional, when God blessed Abraham and told him to be a blessing, did that require commitment on Abraham? Absolutely. He says, go and I'll tell you where to stop. He says, give to me your one and only son whom I've given you, who you've waited for. Did it require commitment for Abraham? Absolutely. What about Isaiah? Did it require commitment for Isaiah? He says, listen, you're going to go to a people and they're never going to hear you. You're going to preach them and they're going to continue to rebel against you, but you still go because you're called to be faithful to me and I will do what only I can do and I will, I will, there will be a seed, there will be a, a peace that will remain of the true Israel and I will do this. And so when you and I, when God draws us in, he's going to send us out and it's scary at times because there's commitment. But can I tell you, it's the most joyous experience that you have because when you've spent yourself for the glory of God, when you've spent yourself for his mission, you know that you're living out what truly matters. You don't have regrets. I don't want to have regrets at the end of my life looking back and saying I've wasted my life on things that don't matter. I've given myself to, to entertainment. I've given myself to leisure and to pleasure. And I haven't given myself to making disciples. I haven't actually invested my life in anybody else. I haven't given myself to others. 
I think that is what we will regret more than that we didn't watch the latest movie or we didn't go where we had always dreamed of going. It's that we did not invest our life in the next generation, that we didn't give ourselves away as God would call us to give ourselves away. So what does it look like for us to live out God's calling? Because God calls all of us in unique and intentional ways differently. And this is why we've done bless. I mean, if you get the hint, every sermon I'm trying to tie in bless, I mean, this is our theme for the nation. This is what God calls us to, because I think as a church, you know, we were talking, I think our church does phenomenal at loving one another. I really do. I think people come in and like, you can sense it. Like people love each other. We love people deeply. There's a sense of family. I think we can grow in our, in our missional mindset and our desire to reach those that are far from God and being uncomfortable and engaging in gospel conversations. And, and that, listen, it's when God calls us out of our comfort zone, when we see him work, man, that's, that's when the greatest joy happens because that's where the testimonies are. Man, I was so scared, but I, I decided I was going to share. And man, God worked. God was faithful. I I'd never thought that I would have them over to my house, but I decided, you know, I really want to get outside my comfort zone. I want to start engaging with people that are really different than me. And so I, I started inviting people that are really different than me just to have dinner with them and share a meal. You know, I, I haven't really listened or understood other people very well, and so I decided I'm going to start asking good questions and listening to those that are radically different and, and don't see things the way that I do because in hoping that I might understand so that I might be able to speak when that opportunity arises. Or, man, I've had this relationship for five years, and I know that God would call me to share the gospel, but I've never really found the perfect time because there's never going to be a perfect time. But I was faithful, and I said, you know, there's really something important I have to talk to you about because I love you and I care about your eternity more than how you think of me. And I want to share with you something that has changed my life forever. God, that I am broken, that I am in need of a Savior, that God's grace came to me because Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And he rose again from the dead. I've trusted that. I've believed that. And it is, I've been born again. I've been saved. And I, I long that you would experience that too. That you would come and see, that you would experience that God is good, that his grace is real. What does it look like? These are all ways praying for others, listening to them, inviting people in, making the strangers friends, serving people. And this is challenging. Listen, it's challenging for me. I'm seeking to do these things, and I fall far short. I mean, I love our neighborhood, and just getting to, getting to know them, listen, it requires, it requires commitment. Is that, you know, it's usually in the most inopportune times, you know, that I am, I'm doing something, and people want to come and talk, and it's that choice of saying, no, I'm called, to, I'm called to love, I'm called to serve. And God provides opportunities in this. We will never know people's problems or what they're going through if we never take time to, to listen and it requires, it requires commitment. I think of, you know, I share for prayer, one of my neighbors right now, he lost his mom about three months ago and has had probably over 20 strokes. Had one to the brainstem, almost died. And I found out, I last, you know, was going to bring a card and found out that it, his wife had just passed a week ago. I mean, just going through just amazingly difficult things. And how do we know the brokenness and the pain in our neighborhoods? That's not unique. We have people all around us and they're just waiting for someone to love them and someone to encourage them, someone to walk alongside them. And we're not Christ. We can't do everything. We can't save them, but we can be his hands and his feet. We can be his mouthpiece. We can be a sense of comfort in people's lives. 
And so how is God wanting to call you out of your comfort zone in order that he might use you to impact someone else? God is calling us. God is calling us. The question is, are we going to respond? I promise you, you will not regret responding to God's call in your life. You will regret not responding. So we see that God is merciful. God is merciful in changing his servants. That God is going to change us together to, to, to live out his love and his grace in the lives of others. Second thing we see, God's mercy changes his enemies. God's mercy changes his enemies. And really, this is the majority of the passage that we see. I mean, you look and it's amazing that Jonah goes and preaches probably one of the, the shortest sermons ever. I mean, some people are like, that's awesome. Can we get Jonah? Uh, I mean, eight words and he's done. It's pretty, that's pretty miraculous. I mean, I don't know how he was a prophet, but, but eight words and he's done. Uh, and so he, he goes and, and he preaches and they repent. They repent. And so the two things that we see about God's mercy to his enemies is that we see the heart of repentance we see a heart of repentance and we see the revival of Nineveh. The heart of repentance and the revival of Nineveh. So the first, the three things, the, at a heart of repentance, the cause of repentance, the act of repentance, the result. So the first, the cause. What caused Nineveh to repent? Because they're a pretty hardened city. I mean, if you look at the, the heinous crimes that they committed, they're a hardened city. I mean, murdered recklessly with no conscience. I mean, what they did to their enemies was beyond barbaric. I mean, it would cause psychological damage that would scar us for the rest of our lives, even seeing what they did to their enemies. And so this is a, this is a place that seems pretty hardened. But for whatever reason, God's mercy came upon them. And when Jonah is spit up by a fish, he goes forth only a day, right? It's a three-day journey. He only goes a day in, and he preaches this short sermon, and they're laid bare. For every reason, God had gone before, and he, man, that was low-hanging fruit. Very, very ripe, ready to go, and Jonah preaches, and their sin is revealed. What does Jonah say? He says, listen, 40 days, Nineveh's done. It's destroyed. And, I mean, all of a sudden, they're convicted of their sin, and the king alludes to this, that obviously he must have thought or hoped that there was a sense of grace or else they wouldn't have done the acts of repentance. So they hope and long that there is a sense of grace that they can be found if they turn from their evil ways. Now, a side note, this should really encourage us in our evangelism. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that I think we can do a lot better than Jonah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we don't have to... Jonah's message was, you're going to hell. We can say a lot more than that. <laughs> and what it, what it proclaims is that it's God that saves. Remember in chapter 2, verse 10, it says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah does a terrible job at proclaiming the gospel, and they all believe. And so what it means is that what hinders us from sharing the gospel with our friends, with our coworkers? Well, I think usually fear. Fear in two ways. One, fear of what they will think of us. Right? They're going to think that we're weird. They're going to think that we're strange. I don't want to be perceived like that. And so usually fear of what other people think of us hinders us from sharing the gospel. And the second fear is that I don't know enough. I'm going to mess it up. I'm not going to get it right. And I just, I don't want to deal with it. I'm not theologically educated. I'm too busy. I mean, Jonah didn't even talk about grace and they were repented. I mean, it's not about I mean, yes, we are called to be faithful in our gospel presentation, but be obedient to God's call. 
When God calls you to share the gospel with someone, be obedient in the call. It's God's work to save them. It's not about your ability to be persuasive or about how much you know, about how intelligent you are. It's about God's grace to save. And when someone asks, it's, it's not that we were educated enough, that we were smart enough to find Jesus. It, it's that Jesus found us. Jesus found you and that Jesus can find anyone, that he can open up their eyes, he can give them sight. So the cause of repentance was that they realized their sin. It, it became true and real to them. And that's the cause of anyone's conversion, is that their sin no longer is this ethereal idea, but it becomes true, it becomes real to them. Now the acts of repentance. What does repentance look like? Three C's. Conviction, contrition, and change. Conviction, contrition, and change. Now conviction first, and that's kind of what it is, is that their sin is no longer idea, but it becomes it comes home to their heart. Now, have you ever been convicted about that? I, rem- I remember when I first came to know the Lord, and many times after I've come to know the Lord, when I've been in re- a rebellious posture, when I've sinned, and the Lord convicts me of it. And it's, it's weird, because other people might look on the outside and say, oh, that's not a big deal, or maybe they would say that's a huge deal. But people look, and, and for me, I know. I know that who I've sinned against is God. I know the evil of it. And this is one of the things that leads to healing, is that it, true conviction. The second part is contrition, is that they, they feel their sin. They feel it. They, it's not just an idea. They don't just talk about it, but it's weighted down. I mean, you see this with that when they, they fast. Fasting is a form of, of mourning. It's a form of seeking God's face, but they cease from eating because they long for something more. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They confess, right? We see that they confess their sin. The king acknowledges, turn from your evil ways. And so part of this act of repentance is that we confess our sin. We're only as sick as our secrets. And so if you have no one that you are truly able to confess to, I would urge you that you're probably not going to be healed as God would have you to be healed. That you need to find people that you're able to open up that, to confess in order to find healing. And the last part is that we change. There's genuine change. You see that their minds are transformed, but then their behavior follows their thinking. And so too, this is what God does in our life, is that he, he convicts us, we feel contrition, we confess, and we change. So four C's, not three. And what are the results of that repentance? God's mercy falls upon them. The results when we repent, when we turn from our sin, is that we experience God's refreshing. And we see this in Acts three nineteen through 20. It says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Have you ever been sick and then woken up the next morning and felt totally better? And is it not such a relief? I don't know if you've had that. I've had that with like sinus. I mean, you're just sinuses are clogged. You have such a huge headache and you go to bed and you're just, you feel terrible. You're like, man, I, I just want to feel better. And then like overnight you wake up and all of a sudden the pressure's relieved. You can breathe. You're like, praise the Lord, I'm healed. And you feel so much better. And I think that this is what, man, do you not think that when you sin that, that it's, it has symptoms spiritually, that it affects you, that it affects everyone else around you? And man, repentance is like taking medicine for your soul. 
is that it brings this healing in. And, and you can tell there's this sense of joy and refreshment. Because for me, when I'm walking in disobedience, one of the first things to go is my joy in the Lord, is my countenance and my, my pleasure in Christ because I'm pursuing pleasure at other places that, doesn't satis- that don't satisfy. And so my joy in the Lord starts to get stripped. And when there's repentance, when I turn from thinking that that will satisfy and that only Christ satisfies, there is such a renewed joy and a renewed peace and purpose in my life. And it's not only beneficial for me, but it spreads to others. It spreads to others. And this is what we see in the last point, the revival of Nineveh. The revival of Nineveh is that when there's true repentance, it spreads and it brings revival. And so conversion is when there's one person that goes from death to life. If you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, this is what God wants to do in your life through faith and repentance. And we see this, that they believed God. They heard the message, they believed God, and it resulted in them turning from their sin and trusting him. And that's the truth for every single one of us. And when you, if you're not a Christian, as all of us were at one point not Christians, the way that we were saved, the way that you were saved is by trusting in Christ. That his death was able to rescue you from sin. That he paid in final and total everything that you have done wrong. That there is nothing that you owe God any longer. That all of your debts have been paid because of Christ. And that you stand forgiven, you stand pure, you stand innocent before him, and you have a new life because he was raised to new life. It's by turning from all of our old ways, right? Because that's what we did. I mean, before I was a Christian, I hoped that sports, I hoped that women, I hoped that, you know, my circumstances would ultimately bring me fulfillment, bring me pleasure. And when I became a Christian, I turned from truth, realizing that those can never do that. And that only Christ is able to bring the contentment and the longing, the fulfillment, that only he is able to to be enough for me. And that when this happens, not in just one person's life, but across, it's called revival. It's called revival. Revival can break out in a person, but it begins to spread in churches, in families, in cities, in nations. And this is what happens in Nineveh, is that revival happens. God comes and he wakes up this whole city. He changes them. And three things that we see in in revival is that we see nominal Christians become saved. So, So when revival has happened historically throughout the church, which it's happened in many times in many places, but Nominal Christians become saved. People that have been born in the church, have been raised up in the church, think that they're Christians, become convicted and realize that they actually never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. They become convicted and they become Christians. The second thing that happens is that sleepy Christians wake up. Is that you see people that genuinely know the Lord but are apathetic, are walking in indifference, are spending their life and their time and their finances on things that don't matter. They wake up and they start realizing that my life is meant for more, and they live with purpose. And you know what happens when those two things occur? Is that the church becomes beautiful. The church becomes vibrant. It becomes a place of passion, of fire, of boldness. And that is beautiful, and it's attractive. And so what happens as a result of that is that you see people that are far from God come to him. People that you never thought would come into a saving relation with Jesus Christ be, start becoming saved as a result of that. And that's what revival is and that's what happens now revival is something that only god can do and only god can bring but there are things that we can do to put ourselves in a better position and so 
the source of revival. We see it starts with God's sovereign grace and mercy, and that oftentimes it can happen through the initiation of one man. I mean, when you look at the Great Awakening, I mean, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, some of these guys, it's through the oftentimes the obedience of one man, you know, or one group of people. They just say, listen, we're going to get serious. We, we long for Christ to move. And so we're going to be devoted. And God moves and he works in that. So often it can happen in one person or, or start in one small group and it just takes off. The, another thing that you see here is that it's, it almost always starts in a, with a grassroots movement. You notice that it, it, Jonah goes and he preaches the people and then word slowly goes and it reaches the king. And then the king issues a decree. I think this is really important for us because sometimes we think that it's going to happen from the top down. Listen, it's, it's a good, we should long for godly leaders in our government. That's not a bad thing. We should want godly leaders in our government. But if we think that by voting in godly leaders that that's going to bring revival, then I think that we've got it mixed up. You see, revival happens from the grassroots. It starts as God's people pursue his holiness and want his presence. And it's as that happens that it trickles and it starts to spread throughout our country into the leaders. That's where true change happens. It doesn't happen from the, from the top down. It happens from the bottom down as God changes people and churches and revival spreads. So four things that usually uh, that can help us to be in a posture of revival. First, what almost always happens in revival is that there's a time of extraordinary prayer. Is that when revival happens, there are people that have given themselves over to deep and profound prayer because they long for God's presence. And prayer isn't something where they're just asking things for God, but they're asking for God. I want more of you. I want to have your joy. I want to have your presence. And I'm going to seek that with everything within me. In those times of prayer, God moves. God moves. And so if we want revival, we need to be a people of prayer. If we want to posture ourselves for revival, we have to be individuals of prayer, but we have to be a church of prayer. That we long for God's presence and we beg for it. We mourn for it. We thirst for it. The second thing that happens in revival is that there's gospel rediscovery. So many of us, we know the gospel. You can tell me the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But what happens in revival is that those things that sometimes seem old and seem repetitive, they become fresh and they become new. Sin and grace, they're no longer concepts or ideas that you just spout off, but they become clear realities as concrete as the ground that we walk on. And so that's what happens in revival is that sin becomes known and it becomes hated and grace becomes real and it becomes held onto and tangible, becomes beautiful and we long for it. Christ and following his call, it, it matters. So we see the gospel is rediscovered. It becomes so profound. It becomes beautiful and real to us. The third thing is that the gospel is applied and almost every great revival that has happened is that you see that there's a fresh gospel application. Whether that is through prayer meetings, you know, you see 1857, this, the great revival in, uh, in New York. It's, there was a, a pastor, uh, really interesting, uh, all the affluent people started to move on the outside of the city, and so the city filled up with, you know, uh, middle class and lower class. And there was one pastor that said, I'm going to stay. All the churches kind of left to follow the people that had money. And one person, one of the churches, they said, we're staying. And so they stayed and they began prayer meetings in the afternoon for businessmen. 
And it grew and it grew to where there was almost over a million people that were at the end of it added to that number. Not just in, in New York, but throughout the country because of this prayer meeting that happened. And so you see that, and it, not just that, but when there's gospel renewal, there's, there's the application of the gospel is revisited. You see that you know, fostering becomes uh, something as near and dear, or the unborn. I mean, you see the application of the gospel, you know, unity in the church and seeing you know, uh, racial harmony. I mean, you see the application of the gospel becomes so much more profound and so much more important. Is that that's where people want to spend their time, want to spend their finances. That's where they give their free time to, is that they long for those things because they are real and they matter. And so you see that that's what happens when the gospel, when revival happens, is the application of the gospel starts to take root and it becomes profound. You know, one of the things that we would love to see is that we would see that the gospel is spread into our neighborhoods is that we would love for our church to be a means through which St. Pete and your neighbors come to know Christ. How? Because they're invited into a place where they're loved, where they're wanting to be known, where people are listening to them, where they're praying for them. That's what our, our community so longs for and is so needed. So and the last thing is gospel innovation, and we talked about it, but Sometimes we are guilty because we think that we can cause revival by just doing what they did before. So in the first great awakening, they had this new innovation where it was outdoor preaching, you know, crazy thing. And so they would go and they would preach outdoors. And that was kind of this new innovative way to communicate the gospel. And another crazy thing, small groups. So small groups was kind of their innovative thing. They hadn't really done small groups before. And so that was how one of the means through which, you know, the gospel was spread and revival happened. Well, what happened after that? Everybody said, well, for the next 100 years, we, what we need to do is we need to do outdoor preaching and we need to do small groups, right? Because that's what worked and that's what's going to work next time. And so you see, the church is so guilty that we just latch on to what, what did they do? And we get stuck in our traditions. But you see, revival it never happens the same way twice. It never happens through the same gospel innovation as it did before. And Tim Keller talks about it, and he says that it's like, quote C.S. Lewis, you know, you can never get back into Narnia the same way twice. Right? You ever read the gospel books? You can't get back in the same way. Once you go through the wardrobe, you can't go through that way again. And it's the same way with revival, is that as God has sparked revival, he, he uses different means and different methods to bring about revival in his people. And so that's where we have to be sensitive. We, we have to be careful that we don't hold on to the past and we make traditions out of things that God would say, listen, that was, that was what I used for that time period and for that people, but I have something new. I have something fresh. I want to work anew in this people in this way. And so we have to be sensitive to God's spirit as he would bring revival in his way. So as we close, what's the application? Well, it's pretty simple. It's that revival would start in us. My, my challenge to you, and it's my challenge, is that today we would go home and we would ask that God would revive us. Because all it takes is, all it takes is a small group that God could bring revival in our city. God could bring revival in our church. He could lead us to live for what truly matters. And so the first place that it starts is it starts with us. And so it's going and it's asking, it's saying, God, what areas would you cause me to be woken up in? What areas am I sleepy in? What areas am I lackadaisical? Am I apathetic to the gospel? And would you, would you waken me? Would you bring me to life that I would live for what truly matters? And who knows, 
what God might do, that God might perhaps show mercy and he might save. He might save your neighborhood, he might save your family, he might save the city because God loves, God loves the city. God loves his enemies and he wants us to be his hands and feet and his mouthpiece and his, his adventure to bring them back to him. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you're patient and that you're merciful, God, that your mercy changes us and it changes your enemies, God. And so help us, help us to, to come alive. Lord, forgive us in the ways in which we have been apathetic, we've been indifferent, Lord. And so I pray that you would revive us, that you would help us to see the pain and the hurt and that we wouldn't just excuse it, we wouldn't just pass by it, but that we would be moved by it, Lord, by your spirit. And that you would, you would see people come to know you through that. And so do what only you can do, God. We pray that we would see a, a fresh awakening um, in this city, in, in this church. We love you. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.